This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 596 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Great Caesar's Ghost. A Kryptonian invasion, Snart and the rogues are in a jam, the first eight days of Eight Billion Genies, and Captain Carter versus Vamps. This is how I got my wife to read comics for Sunday, July 17th, 2022. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, or subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher. And maybe leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, and call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. From the people who brought you the fantastic Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen miniseries, it's... Superman's Pal Jimmy Olsen's Boss Perry White Number 1 by Fraction, Lieber, Magan, Swan, Blaisdell, Coletta, Clyde, Haspiel, Bendis, and Rice. This is a series of reprints along with a new story starring the cigar-chomping Daily Planet editor. Metropolis saves Superman, sees Perry wanting to see a new headline come off the presses. It reminds him of his first byline involving the cancellation of a dog race. He's gotten tired of variations of the headline, Superman saves Metropolis, such as, City endures, Superman sighted, devastation spoiled by Superman, area man saves area, area dog, good boy, a crypto story. But today's headline is different. After an alien invasion, Luthor cons the city into buying drones that just happen to run on kryptonite. They attack soups, and all seems lost before Lois and Jimmy realize they're programmed to never harm humans. So they, and other metropolans, form a human shield around Superman and use rocks to take out the drones. Result, Metropolis saves Superman. Subheading, damn it, Luthor, pout stupid boondoggled mayor. Then, a reprint from the Jimmy Olsen miniseries, Force Manure. Perry is angry at Jimmy, as usual, this time for destroying their version of the Statue of Liberty, the monarch of Metropolis, making all the souvenirs useless and putting the planet in a spot. Their insurance policy includes an Olsen mitigation exclusion. They must have seen him coming. We see a tableau of all the crazy events involving Mr. Olsen. Then, their IT guy shows them the figures. Jimmy's shenanigans generate enough click-through and ad revenue to keep the Daily Planet solvent. So Perry tells him to ramp up the craziness. The publisher, who we will learn later is a baddie, asks Clark if he could keep an eye on Jimmy. Gosh, Mrs. Leone, I wish I could, but that might be a job only Superman could handle. Wink. Leone wonders who Clark is winking at. Leon tells Perry to send Jimmy out of town and let him have some adventures there. The toughest newsboy in town from Action Comics number 461 in 1976. The White family is having Easter dinner when Perry decides to tell his grandkids a story of his youth. 
He's hawking the Daily Planet on the street, and a headline ties this to 1934. He happens to recognize a guy who buys a paper. He's a missing toy magnet, Victor Larson. So he hands his papers to a buddy and races off to follow Larson, hopping on the back of trucks and cars to do so. Larson goes into his old office, and Perry hears through a skylight that Larson is holding someone hostage, a toy maker who apparently figured out the secret of the atomic bomb. He's working there since he couldn't find a physicist's job in the Depression. Perry leaves through the skylight and fights Larson, eventually KOing him. Meanwhile, the toy maker physicist conveniently dies of a heart attack. Perry writes up the story, which the paper refuses, saying the atomic bomb is a fantasy. It does get Perry's foot in the door for a reporter's job. The Super Cigars of Perry White from Action Comics number 436, 1974, which happens to be one of the first comics I ever bought as a kid. Two hippie kids see Perry going into the planet and mentally transport something into his office above, and they then disappear. Meanwhile, Clark makes it to work just in time. A trip to the Sirius star system ran late, running into an office girl on the way in. He gets a call from Perry, who's getting a Pulitzer, his third. Morgan Edge, Galaxy Communications CEO and their boss, are sending them on his private plane to the ceremony at Columbia University. Clark will carry the event for GPS. There's a pressure leak, and the pilot is knocked out. Clark pulls the I-need-an-airsick-pill bit, while Perry feels helpless. He wishes he had the strength to do something. Suddenly, he does, smashing a hole in the wall and flying out of the plane. Superman is shocked to see his old boss in the air as Perry flies the plane to a safe landing. After a commercial flight, necessary so that Clark gets there, Clark runs into some old Metropolis U classmates who play a trick on him. Perry wishes he could help his friend, and a super blast of cigar smoke fells Clark's tormentors. Then what appears to be an earthquake shakes the building, and Perry flies up to write things. The other reporters now assume he's Superman. The Man of Steel finds a generic 70s bad guy with a drilling vehicle who's breaking into a building. It has anti-Superman weapons, which throws Cal for a loop. Perry is hit, his cigar is knocked out of his mouth, and he loses his power. Superman recognized that the vehicle runs on atomic power, and there's an unused nuclear reactor underground, which Columbia actually has. It's powering the vehicle, so Supes knocks that out of commission, stalling the vehicle. Back at the conference, Perry states that he is not Superman and that he has no idea how he got these powers. Others than he just has to wish for them, so he wishes to know where his powers came from. In a previous story, Clark and Perry saved an alien race, and we learned that in appreciation they got Perry a gift, cigars that, when smoked, gave him the powers. Maybe an instruction manual would have been nice? Perry only has one super cigar left, and he places it in a safe behind his new Pulitzer, just in case he needs it again. Old Men Talking in Bars from Superman 80-Page Giant 2011. There's a fight going on at a watering hole as Wildcat is beating up some thugs. Perry, at the bar, watches the action before Wildcat, Ted Grant, sits down next to him. They both have a tale of woe. Perry's son Keith is moving out of town. It's become too dangerous in Metropolis. Perry feels he's abandoning his roots. Ted's son, the new Wildcat at the time, is rejecting Ted's wisdom off with his own team. They've just found each other, and he's already leaving. 
Perry mentions how Ted saved his life once. A flashback involving Perry's first byline sees Ted and Jim Harper, a.k.a. The Guardian, in a charity boxing match. Inner Gang drops in to steal the gate, resulting in a brawl. Perry tries to stop one of them from shooting Harper, leaving himself in the crosshairs. Ted saves Perry at the last moment. Perry interviewed Ted post-fight, and that was the story. He keeps a copy of it in his wallet. Ted tells him that Perry left Metropolis for his career at one point, but did come back. Maybe their kids will, too. Ted mentions that Perry owes him a drink, and they toast each other. Finally, there's an excerpt from Truth, the 2019 story where Clark goes public with his secret identity, starting with his friends. After conferring with Adam Strange, there's a wordless three-page sequence where Clark goes to work, musters up his courage, and walks into Perry's office. He reveals the costume under the suit. Perry is shocked, then walks up to give Clark a hug. I really wish they did these reprint specials more often. I loved the 100-page super spectaculars of the mid-70s with a new story followed by reprints. It's how I learned of the JSA and the Golden Age. Flashpoint Beyond number 3 of 6 by Johns, Adams, Sheridan, Zermanico, Janin, Fajardo Jr., and Belair. We begin on Krypton and the rocket taking off from the doomed planet. In this version, it's not alone. There's an armada of similar vessels. While Clark's ship lands in Smallville, the rest crash into Metropolis, decimating the city. Cut to current day and a news report on the 30th anniversary of the attack, noting that The Batman recently released Subject Number 1, a.k.a. Cal. Oswald is teaching Harvey Dent's orphan son how to pick locks when an image of reverse flash appears. I need... Thomas Wayne, he's coming for me again, hyper before blinking out. What was that, Mr. Cobblepot? No idea, kid, but I need a drink. You want one? Back to Thomas being confronted by subject number one. Cal scares off Boomerang, then asks Bruce for his help. Bruce responds by punching him in the face, breaking his hand. Cal backhands Bruce, knocking him out. Cut to Gilded Dent strapped down after beating her head on a door and turning into a new Two-Face. She hears a voice telling her, I know what you did. He'll come to us. A boy needs his mother. And then we can finish this. Bruce awakens at the Oasis, a sanctuary created by Swamp Thing, a.k.a. Jason Woodrow. Poison Ivy welcomes Bruce, then takes him to Cal. A Kryptonian crystal has a recording of Jor-El, who goes through the normal spiel before making a sharp turn. Cal's mission was to soften up Earth's defenses before the main Krypton fleet arrives, so that they can conquer as father and son. An invasion is imminent, five days, but Bruce is still on the Nothing Matters plan. He tells Cal that Jor-El might have the right idea. Cal explains that they are forming an army, Cyborg, Element Woman, Starman, a half-alien called Bloodline, a scientist known as Eclipsa, Snapper Car, now with the H-Dial. Bruce is to lead them against the invasion. Bruce refuses, saying that he will find his way home. Back in Gotham, there's another victim of the clockwork killer found by Iris West. He broke into her home, and by the time she got her husband, the man was eviscerated. It was reverse flash. Cut to hypertime, where a time bubble is making its way in the void. It's the rest of Rip Hunter's team. There's a reference to the Omniverse and the Great Darkness. They're worried that Corky is involved and might make things worse. Hypertime has enough problems with Thomas Wayne still around. We get a tableau of various continuities. 
Rogue's Book 3 from DC Black Label by Williamson, Leo Max, and Wordy. In Central City, DEO investigators are looking over Leonard Snart's shack, trying to figure out the rogue's plan. Chase finds a book about secret cities and realizes where they are. In Gorilla City, Sam Simeon is interrogating Snart. He wants to know what they are there to steal. He also wants to know why Snart, with his cold gun knowledge, didn't just sell it to the military. Because that's just what the world needs, cops with ice guns. Sam is reminded of his better days, then has a hunch. It's the gold supply. He explains how well secured it is and that they can't possibly get in there. Sam offers him all the security codes they will need to have a chance, if they also kill Grodd. Cut to Grodd's palace with his wife singing to their infant son. Grodd comes in and apologizes to her for how he treated her. It's a whole godfather thing. One of his flunkies comes in saying he has a meeting. Cut to the rogues in hiding, waiting for Snart. They are losing faith that they can do this just before Snart arrives with the codes and the plan. A symbol-playing monkey toy distracts the guards before the rogues blow a hole in them, while explosions go off citywide as a distraction. Glider gets to the security pad and enters the code. The next room is massive and filled with gold bars. The others keep the apes busy while Evan uses his mirror gun, after a pep talk from Magenta, to create a warp to the mirror world. Magenta uses her powers to start shooting the gold into it. Grodd, Grimm, and Sam are outside, and Grodd tells him they're going around the back, but there's only the front entrance. No offense, but I don't tell you all our business, Sam. Snart pushes Magenta to send through all the gold, which kills her. Evan turns on Snart. It's always about you! He shuts down the warp, trapping the gold inside and throwing the gun away. The rogues outside are about to be overcome, and Grodd is coming in the back door. They force their way out the front, icing a bunch of apes before going into the tunnels. Then they find the real wealth of the city, the massive drug lab. Grodd is the biggest drug lord in the world. So, no gold, no way out. Fortunately, Jesse did grab something, a talking baby monkey, which he plans to add to his act. Of course, this is Grodd's kid. Grodd learns of this and finds the mirror gun, which is the only way the rogues are escaping. Sam arrives, telling the rogues he's with them, and the group realizes Snart has been playing his own angle the whole time. Sam recognizes Grodd's son, and Snart says it's time to negotiate. Eight Billion Genies, number three of eight, from Image Comics by Sewell and Brown. It was just announced that this series, still in progress, just got picked up by Amazon Studios for TV series and movies. Amazing what happens when you have a new concept. As a reminder, everyone on Earth just got their own genie, offering one wish each. Chaos follows. Hours after the genie event, a researcher in Antarctica figures out his wish. Take Earth's atmospheric levels back to pre-industrial days. That will give the world time to figure out sustainable solutions. The genie replies, Pretty clever. Consider it done. It's now safe to say that climate change is no longer the primary existential threat to humanity. Enjoy the show! The researcher watches Santa and his reindeer be devoured by the moon. The Earth has a huge bite out of it, along with eyes, a mouth, arms, and legs. The southern U.S. is now called Dugland. The first eight days. We started with eight billion people on Earth. We're already down to six billion. Day two, at the bar, Hemingway, Dorothy Parker, and Jim Morrison are having another drink. A genie explains that they were created from two separate wishes. 
One wanted to train bon mots. The other wanted weird sex. The bartender wants them to pay their tab, and after he rejects Hemingway's scribblings, Morrison says he'll sing for them. Fortunately, there's already a band there, but they barely know who Morrison is. Also, fortunately, the internet is still working thanks to the bartender's wish that no wish would affect things in the bar. Chinese wife La Feng wonders how her husband Wang is doing. He went off for a critical mission to another bar, and the genie shows her. Wang, in full battle armor, fights off a vampire on his way to the other bar. Band member Alex asks Lifing what was so important that Wang is risking his life. It's to save their family. Morrison, mid-song, dissipates into nothingness. A genie explains that he was a remnant formed from a wish who ceased to exist once the wisher dies. The young boy, having just gotten back his dead mom due to his dad's wish, is terrified that mom, a remnant, will disappear. Day four, back to Wang, who is approached by a young man asking for help. He was an old man before his wish, but now needs assistance to get his family to safety. Wang reluctantly refuses, saying his mission is more important. If the guy is still there, when he returns, he'll give him a hand. Day five, back at the bar, the TV reports that an eighth Mount Doom has appeared in New Zealand. The bartender asks a genie how many people have asked for health-related wishes. He replies that quite a few came at first, but now cured, they realize they are still in a crazy and dangerous world. Hemingway zaps out, and Parker gets ready to go with another martini. At the other bar, Wang confronts Bernie Haysmith, who blackmailed Wang to sell his company secrets. He goes to hand Bernie a thumb drive, intending to save his family. But now that he sees what has happened to the world, he crushes the drive instead. Bernie is about to wish him dead when Wang blows his head off. He didn't even get to wish. What a waste. Wang returns to the main bar and tells his wife he did what needed to be done. Wang tells the group, I saw so many wasted wishes out there. People wish to be rich. They are fools. Wealth has become irrelevant. Fame? What value does fame have now? Only two things matter family, and survival. I came back here for my wife and child and to pass a message to those of you who still have wishes left. When you wish, think of the world that is, not the world that was. Parker drinks to that before popping out. Day 8. The young boy had worked out his wish. When his dad dies, his mom will too. Making dad immortal is not a good idea. So he decided to make himself a powerful superhero. He will find a safe place and make sure they are all safe forever. He goes out and immediately runs into others who thought the same thing. It is now the Powered Days. Next issue, the first eight weeks. Captain Carter number four from Marvel by McKelvey, Cresta, and Milla. Peggy and Tony find themselves fighting an army of goons and not doing well. Tony notices that none of the goons have any body heat or are breathing. They're synths, which means Peggy doesn't have to hold back her punches. Even with that info, they end up retreating. They go back to her hacker neighbor's flat, where Lizzie Braddock and the hacker have a discussion on privilege. They show Tony the list of all the people that the PM supposedly went to school with, but clearly he was never there, and he sets up a meeting with one of them to learn more. Tony goes to the Illuminati Club. That's on the nose, and there's calling your private members club the Illuminati, and acts like he needs access to the PM for a business deal. The PM's chum seems to act like he thinks he actually went to school with him, and then goes out on the roof for a smoke. 
Meanwhile, the government wakes up a story that Peggy Carter has gone insane and killed 15 people, the synth goons. Lizzie recognizes the photo of the woman that has been dogging Peggy. She's in the House of Lords. Tony goes up to the roof to find the PM's buddy, only to find him on the ledge, telling him he's being forced to do this before jumping off. Back at the flat, they trace the call the jumper was on. It was the PM. They also find photos of the mystery blondes and the PM's grandparents, and they're identical to the two people today. Peggy figures it out and slips off. She uses Tony's holographic disguiser to get into 10 Downing Street, almost taking out the PM before he somehow sees her. He calls in the guards, calling Peggy a broken mind, and they take her off. He turns away, and we see Fangs. He and the mystery woman are vampires. Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe by your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.